Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jim Kircher. More than two millennia after the ancient orator Demosthenes refined his speaking style by talking with pebbles in his mouth, great speeches continue to play a significant role in our world. That enduring impact on public life especially, as well as the value of public speaking skills for everyday contexts, is in the spotlight during Optimist International's Oratorical World Championships this week, taking place at St. Louis University. The competition runs Thursday through Saturday with several sizable scholarships, scholarship awards awaiting the winners. Joining me in the studio to talk about the enduring and evolving craft of speech making is Rebecca Butler Mona, president of Optimist International. And we also have two other guests today joining us remotely. Professor Wayne Fields is the Lynn Cooper Harvey Chair Emeritus in English at Washington University and the author of Union of Words, A History of Presidential Eloquence, among other books. Also joining us is Justice Hill, who's a past winner of the oratorical competition. He won the $5,000 third place prize in 2016 in the World Championships, and he's now headed into his sophomore year at SLU. Rebecca, Wayne, Justice, thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. Well, Glad to be here. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming in, guys. And Rebecca, well, first of all, the Optimists have been holding this oratory competition. Um, of course, Optimist Club International is is devoted is a service club devoted to uh, youth programs of all mm-hmm. kinds. But you've been doing this for a long time. Why today do you think it's still important to to do oratory? Well, that's a great question, Jim, and you're right. Actually, our Optimist Oratorical Contest is our longest-running program for Optimist International. We actually began in 1928, so quite a long time, but this is the fourth year we've had our world championship. But we see this as probably as relevant as ever it's been in history because, you know, that ability to communicate effectively, to create a compelling story, to be able to persuade your point of view is is a valuable skill. You know, we're told that public speaking is uh, everybody's number one fear, you know, even greater fear than death itself, we're told. So uh, something that uh, to be able to overcome that fear is very important. And today, you know, as we have so many people who are communicating through brief text messages and through social media and email, that ability to communicate effectively through a verbal exchange is uh, is almost a lost art and one we think is really important to preserve. Yeah, is it still um, popular? How many people are actually competing in these in these championships? And and you're you're covering a, a wide area here, so we we are, and uh, we do still have a very um, very competitive race. I will say literally thousands compete in the various levels of our competition. So I will just briefly on that, you know, our contest begins with the local club level. So we've got about 2,500 Optimus clubs throughout our organization, and they can have a contest at a local level. Those winners advance to what we call a zone, so kind of a, a smaller region. And then we have a district championship, and we have about 50 districts across Optimus International. At that level, they earn a $2,500 first place scholarship. We also give a second and third place. It's those winners who then advance to be here with us. We added this world championship here in St. Louis at St. Louis University 
of, in 2016. So we're going into our fourth round. And there's some serious money at state. So I think that's one of the, as a, as a parent of a, a student going off to a freshman year of college, I can tell you scholarships are important. And so the top winner has a chance to earn actually $22,500 from the various levels. So that has kept the interest very high. Justice, you're a college student now. Um, what what got you interested in in say entering this uh, this contest in the first place? This was a few years ago, but um, have you always been a good talker, or was this something you just thought you'd give it a shot and see? Well, I've been told that I've always uh, been a good speaker, uh, but my father was the one who uh, really um, introduced me to the sound of my own voice, and um, the head of the school at my high school, Heathwood Hall. Um, told me about the Optimus International Oratorical Contest and said that I should apply, and I ended up applying and doing well um, at the local level, then the state level, um, then went on to the national level, then to the world championship level. But really uh, what has inspired me to speak is just um, what comes with inspiring others, like through the power of my voice. Um, I like to let my light shine, and by letting my light shine, I want to encourage others to let their light shine. Yeah, Professor Fields, I'm wondering from the uh, the academic standpoint, historical standpoint, um, is, and this, we're in the debate season, so we know that, that public speaking is is still an important skill to have in certain fields. Well, democracy itself depends upon uh, reason, discourse, uh, as a form of persuasion as opposed to simply power or force itself. And so... From the very beginning, especially in the United States, there's been a heavy emphasis both in education and in uh, our general consideration of political institutions, of the quality of talk uh, that not just leaders but citizens themselves are capable of. Uh, first thing, one of the first appointments Thomas Jefferson made when he created the University of Virginia was a professor of rhetoric. Uh, and oratory, and John Quincy Adams held that position at Harvard uh, for a while. So, you know, from the very beginning, we've understood that the quality of talk and the quality of democracy are inseparable. Yeah, the is is speech making or or speech and oratory is that still taught? Of course, you're always going to run across people who say, uh, you know, schools aren't doing enough. This is being dropped. Uh, uh, is is it still something that is um, part of an education? Well, it's uh, an erratic uh, pattern, it would seem to me. The the sense of its importance has been diminished a lot over time, and we have tended to think of rhetoric almost always in negative terms. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, the responsible use of persuasion, as opposed to simply teaching people how to write better academic papers or how to perform uh, effectively with a certain kind of glibness, uh, has not gotten the attention at, at any level in, in American education in recent years uh, that not only it deserves, but that democracy requires. So in the, uh, the, the actual competition, uh, Rebecca, every year there's, there's this, you've, you've got rules, you've got a topic um, I'm reading the um, how things are judged, uh, poise, content of speech, delivery and presentation, and overall effectiveness. Uh, the topic this year? The topic this year is, is there a fine line between optimism and reality? And uh, it's always intriguing to see how the individuals participating can take a topic like that and come at it from a number of different perspectives and, and deliver some very, very interesting uh, 
discussion. The coming year's topic is just imagine a world without boundaries. So we try to give them something they can really work with and per per portray a point of view. Yeah, and certainly, uh, Justice, the, um, the, the presentation is maybe what people focus on, but structuring a four to five minute speech is, is at least half, if not more, the, the battle than just the presentation. How long did you work on, and it has to be at least four and no longer than five, right? So Justice, the, these, are, these are pretty restrictive uh, uh, requirements. How did you go about that? Um, I just, I approach uh, memorizing my speech and um, by practicing it every day. Preparation um, is key. And I feel that, um, like you said, presentation is more important than the content. But day in and day out, I practice my speech uh, sometimes 10 times a day because I realized I had an opportunity um, to do something very big, not only for myself, but for my state, my family, and for everyone I know. So when it came to preparing for the 2016 Oxford International Oratorical Contest, that year's topic was how my best brings out the best in others. I really just thought about all the people who really inspired me in my life and um, allowed me to be the young man I am today. So thinking about that really allowed me to become one with this speech and ultimately um, lead to the success that I had in the competition. Yeah, I'd like to invite our listeners into this conversation in case you have, uh, if maybe you need some advice on how to make a speech or a presentation. If you've got a question or comment about this topic, give us a call. We're at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. For any of you, I think one of the most common questions is how do you get over the fear of public speaking? Some people have it and can't get over it, and some people figure out ways to get over it. Rebecca, do you uh, get these questions going in, or do the kids who enter this already get over that fear? Yeah, great question. I think that some of them are naturally comfortable and more inclined, and that's why they take that step, and somebody's seen that in them and encouraged them. But we've also had students who have a great story of a young woman named Dominique who was in our competition last year and actually suffered from um, a speech impairment herself, one that actually made it hard for her to say her own name, if you can imagine that. And so she was encouraged to start public speaking as a way to get over that fear and did so well. She ended up in the top three in our world championship last year. So fabulous story. And sometimes it just comes with practice. Justice, how did you uh, 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 practice your speech? Are you, are you an in front of the mirror kind of guy or in front of family or what? What's, the, what's, the, what's your best advice? Um, my best advice, um, just like pra practice in front of a mirror, um, I, before the competition in 2016, I uh, actually gave the speech in front of my church. Sometimes while I was driving, I would just uh, recite the speech. And like, well, nervousness is definitely uh, like a big factor when it comes to public speaking. No matter, I feel that no matter how long you've been public speaking, every now and then you'll have those butterflies in your stomach of nervousness. But I like to use my nervousness as energy. Um, to really perform better. And um, my motto is stand tall and be bold. Yeah, Professor Fields, you've looked at um, presidential speech makers. Certainly, certain people come to mind. Ronald Reagan was considered the great communicator. I had the opportunity to see him at one of the conventions. I saw Mario Cuomo make a convention speech. That blew people away. I heard Albin Barkley was a great speaker at conventions. Does it still have the impact today, can it still have the impact that it, that it, it has had in the past? 
Uh, yes, it does. I mean, and in a number of ways. I mean, whenever there is a national tragedy uh, that we have to contend with, it's often uh, the president who has to address that in a way that both satisfies our need to mourn and points us towards a future. Uh, Reagan, if the Challenger disaster, uh, Clinton, after the Oklahoma City bombing, we can think of lots of, of examples of that. Uh, it also is pivotal in terms of how we make decisions about our future, how we regard one another. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's speech on voting rights bill was important. FDR after Pearl Harbor, all those speeches were eloquent in terms of the beauty of the language, but it's also about the quality of thought and the legitimacy of the argument that's being made. I think that uh, as long as we are trying to move together as a united people, the key to it is being able to hear our thoughts expressed in their highest form and in their in their best argued fashion uh, if we're going to move anywhere. We're going to continue our own uh, interpersonal communication skills here in just a moment. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue the conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation with Rebecca Butler-Mona, president of Optimist International, Washington University Emeritus Professor Wayne Fields, and Justice Hill, former oratorical championship winner and current St. Louis University student. You know, as, as I was thinking about this, uh, public speaking, we're really talking about public speaking, and I'm thinking preachers, teachers, politicians, people who need to make presentations, and people who need to make elevator pitches. They've got to get that down to 30 seconds or 45 seconds or whatever the requirement is. So while I think sometimes we do think that modern electronics is ending or, or, or maybe limiting the need for, for public speaking, uh, Rebecca, you're probably thinking not. Uh, I completely agree with you that uh, the need is still there, you know, and that's part of where we thought that our competition is something to encourage people to recognize that. Um, you know, it's funny, some of the examples you give, you know, some of our prior uh, participants and winners that maybe people you've heard of or people like Vice President Mike Pence, who participated as a fifth grader in Indiana, uh, actors like Julia Roberts, um, Neil Patrick Harris, who won as a 13-year-old in New, Me New Mexico, West Texas, and wrote about it in his autobiography. So uh, some wonderful examples. And uh, another one, just recently, we had our Optimus International Convention in Louisville just a couple weeks ago. We had, uh, as a keynote speaker, a young woman named Monica Harden, who's a TV news anchor there, who credits getting her start in the Optimist Oratorical Contest in Kentucky, went on to be Miss Kentucky, and is now a, a news broadcaster. So definitely very relevant today. Yeah, I want to go to the phones because I think people are interested in this topic. And uh, Dick is calling from St. Louis. Dick, you there? Yes, uh, I had uh, a question for uh, Justice and perhaps a suggestion. Uh, what uh, what grade are you in at SLU? I'm a rising sophomore. Okay, rising sophomore. Okay, so you'll be a junior next year. Are you are you involved in debate at at SLU? Um, currently, I'm not, but I was a senator for the Black Student Alliance. I'm a resident advisor. Um, I speak at my church, uh, St. Paul AME Church up there, very often. 
Um, I'm in the learning community leadership for social change. I, I'm involved in uh, multiple other activities, but not currently in debate. Yeah, so Dick, you well, think debate's the way to go for, for, for well, some folks? I, I think it would be a nice compliment. He's obviously got great uh, skills and, and oratory, and I think back to my own experience, I was a shy kid in uh, in eighth grade, and when I went into high school, a nun kind of hounded me into getting into debate. I went up getting a debate scholarship to college, and uh, the story about President Kennedy was he was a gawky, sort of uh, shy speaker until his dad took him out to uh, meet uh, over the summer with the head of debate at John Carroll University, which is another Jesuit uh, university. Yeah, I think, I think there's all kinds of um, interesting stories about individuals who uh, came up, um, and wh- whether they, they had a speech impairment or they had the fear and the opportunity to, uh, you know, perform a little bit, to memorize uh, Got, helps them get over that that particular hump. So, I think by the time you get to the championships, the optimist uh, oratorical championships, you've gotten over those humps. But you've probably heard lots of stories about that, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, we have. Uh, Great examples of uh, storytelling throughout, and as you say, when you have all those levels of competition, you know, there's kind of a built-in ability to continue to practice to a broader audience, and as you do that, you gain confidence, and, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really quite something to see. Have you been involved in speech? I was on the speech team uh, in high school, and uh, so I have to say this. I was on there with another St. Louisan now, uh, John Vullo, who's a local actor and uh, drama teacher. We came to St. Louis. The other guy on the speech team went to Hollywood. That was David Hasselhoff. But um, his speech was uh, just one of those activities that I took to, and... um, in fact, and I, I, it was what I remember is rewriting, throwing out one speech because it was so bad and, and just starting over. So the, the process of communicating and zeroing in on writing and rewriting and practicing and practicing in this particular case um, is really, really important. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and, and on a personal note, I did participate in various speech competitions, both small group, large group, individual, uh, was on the debate team as well and also did theater. But, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a great skill to have. And, you know, I spent over 30 years at IBM and marketing executive roles as well. And being able to speak um, is definitely a skill that was very, very helpful to me. Now, let's take another call. This one, Tom's calling from Webster Groves. Tom? Yes, the uh, professor mentioned the critical importance of, of rhetoric and dialogue, uh, diacritical thinking for democracy. Uh, even referring to the, the founders, Jefferson and, and John Quincy Adams. Um, and it feels to me like, you know, in the modern age, one of the problems with rhetoric is that it tends to be more superficial and, and doesn't really get to the meat and potatoes of the logic of, of policy decisions that we or discussions that we need to have. Uh, and I'd like to uh, put forward uh, a possible topic for future, uh, not only debate, but also uh, for speech writers, and that that would be um, the only amendment I'm interested in anybody putting forward to the Constitution, an enu- an, how would you word an enumerated right to privacy? Um, it seems to me that uh, everything hinges on it, the exact and specific wording because it can have so much, uh, so many unintended consequences by getting it wrong. Well, uh, I, I want to throw this to uh, pr- Professor Fields. There's, I think, if I read the first part of this correctly, there's, there's a question of style over substance. 
here. And I suppose, Professor, when you watch speeches, you, you can pick that out pretty quickly. Well, most of us can, I think, in a way. I mean, the, there, there are a couple of related issues here. One is that ultimately uh, eloquence of, of a sort that's enduring and powerful depends on the quality of thought, not just upon uh, the beauty of the language. Uh, secondly, there is a profound moral responsibility that goes with any kind of rhetoric. When you're trying to affect the way other people think or the way other people act, uh, that's not something to be taken lightly. And uh, that's, in fact, uh, what persuasion is about. So in order to do it well, it has to be carefully composed uh, and deliberated, not just glibly spoken, so that in all of these events there's this intense moral dimension to what we're doing as well as a political necessity for it so the constant tension between doing the best job you can in terms of quality of thought and the most effective representation of that thought is is what drives things forward i think mostly we recognize that when we listen to a speech like i have a dream we know that it's more that it's about something more than the magnificence of the language. We realize the depth of the argument that has been developed all through the civil rights movement coming out in that moment. Uh, when we listen to, uh, to the Gettysburg Address, we can read it almost like a poem on one hand. On the other hand, it's a powerful statement about the commitment that's required for the enormous sacrifice of this war that we were conducting over uh, slavery in the Union. Yeah, every time, every time the, the issue of oratory comes up, the Gettysburg comes to mind for me because, and, and maybe this is, uh, you, you can tell me if this is accurate or not, but ed, everybody was waiting to hear the great orator, Edward Everett, who would speak for, what, an hour or something. And, a couple of hours. Yeah, a couple of hours. Like and a, the text seems to go on forever anyway. Yeah, but that's, that's really a question. Let's talk maybe a little bit about the evolution of style. That oratory, even the word, sounds sort of highfalutin to me, as opposed to uh, conversational. But it has the style of, of and the effectiveness of oratory changed? And maybe we could start with, uh, with Gettysburg and work from there. Well, I think the style has changed in part because of new technologies and uh, also because of uh, the way we do our political business. Uh, these days. And uh, there is less patience, I think, with uh, some forms of, of oratory that were viewed as, as entertainment in the past. I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates went on for hours, uh, and huge crowds went to listen to them, not simply because there were the critical issues of the day being discussed, but because this was a central form of education and entertainment for the age. They went to the Chautauqua circuit. They went over and over again to places where ministers gave long, uh, long sermons, where uh, representatives of social reform gave long speeches. Now we expect sound bites, and uh, our tolerance for something longer really requires a kind of depth of skill and commitment in the speaker as well as the audience that uh, we still can achieve, and we still do, but I think it's less an inherent part of the of the culture than it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. So we've got to ask this since you've written about presidential speech making. Um, what would you write about Donald Trump today? Where does he fit into uh, what category, or is he in his own category? Well, in a way, he's in his own category. He's a product of a modern technological age in which uh, 
tweets and things like that have become enormously important in in the way people think ideas are being communicated although usually we're we're expressing our opinion as emphatically as we can in those in those contexts uh but it's not it's not argument in i would say the classical or traditional sense uh very little of it depends upon a, 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 a logical argument that's being developed it depends more upon a kind of matching instinct in the audience and the speaker than it does upon the quality of the speech and uh so it's a different it's a different kind of communication than say what Kennedy was practicing in the inaugural or what uh, Obama was practicing when he gave his speech about race relations in America. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it has to be thought of. It seems to me in a different way. Yeah, and it, it but it still always leads to the line um, that that's going to be remembered. That's that's certainly. I wonder if the speech makers or the speech writers always know which line is going to be remembered, whether it's an iron curtain has fallen or, or whatever the quote might be. But today, if you're debating, you know in your mind what soundbite you want to make the news. So I think in writing a speech, uh, if you're a politician particularly and being covered for television or radio or for any digital platform, you know what words you would like picked out uh, for the the next newscast, don't you think? No, I think that's exactly right. The thing, though, is, is in a way, when you're a politician or a minister or a teacher, uh, you're building over time. And the question of how that soundbite uh, resonates next week with more information available or how much it was just the thing of the moment and it disappears uh, is crucial, it seems to me, in terms of the effectiveness of policy makers and leaders in terms of giving us a sense of direction and a sense of who they are and where they're going. Yeah, I think when the optimists have a, a competition for young people, those folks who succeed, those young people like Justice who succeed, they've got to jump on everybody else. But what about adults? I mean, and, and I wonder, Rebecca, in your position as becoming president of an international mm -hmm. organization, uh, were you ready for the public speaking uh, requirements that came along with that job? Well, um, you try to be ready, right? right? You know, I mean, some of the things that help, of course, are, you know, even coming into the election once nominated is, you know, putting together, a, you know, like a three-minute video of what your vision is and what are the goals that you have and how do you intend to go about it. So I guess in some ways that's a form of speech like we're talking about, but delivered via video for people to be able to consume at their convenience. But uh, certainly any time that I visit um, clubs, districts, or on stage in front of over 1,300 people a couple of weeks ago in Louisville for our international convention, all of those involve public speaking. So um, kind of like Justice described it, you know, you try to be prepared, you try to have the key points you want to make, and you got a little bit of butterflies, and hopefully that's just to give you the energy to make it more impactful. But uh, frankly, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. We're talking with Rebecca Butler-Mona, president of Optimist International, Washington University Emeritus Professor Wayne Fields, and Justice Hill, a former oratorical championship winner and current St. Louis University student. Justice, um, I'm not sure if you told us, did you tell us what you're going to do when you grow up, because you're almost there, with all of this great public speaking uh, ability that you have? How does that apply, do you think, uh, as you go forward and at uh, SLU and then beyond? Uh, right now, I have my, uh, I'm thinking about being a lawyer, uh, to use my voice. Um, for those who voices uh, that have been muted, 
um, as well as possibly being a, a politician or maybe even being a pastor. Um, I really just want to um, use the power of my voice to um, to reach the people. Um, I've been uh, told I have a gift, and I want to use that gift to inspire others and inspire um, the next generation. Um, Office International, they gave me a great platform in um, the 2016 Oratorical Contest, and it has opened many doors for me. Um, I often say that they gave me a key to unlock the door of endless opportunity, but I had to turn the key and enter that door on my own. So with that, like when, after I finished the contest, um, I was just inspired to continue to make my voice heard uh, in the church, um, at school, anywhere. So right now I'm set on uh, possibly being a lawyer, politician, or a pastor. Well, okay, those are those are good choices. The uh, I'm wondering with the restrictions of the four to five minutes, the uh, the, the topic that you had to uh, address when you were in the competition, did those restrictions um, force you into a discipline that maybe you didn't have before in terms of public speaking? Um, well, with the with the time limit, it definitely um, uh, forces you to like get to your point, like make your main point. Um, at a certain time, but like after you continue to practice um, and rehearse, I mean the the time is no longer um, affects you. So, um, but I, I feel, definitely feel that it's important to uh, have the time limits because as a speaker, you have to um, make your points and ensure that your audience is following you. I mean, if you're speaking for too long, you might lose your audience and they'll no longer listen to you. But four to five minutes is like that perfect time where people will follow you until the end and actually want to, to hear some more. Uh, professor, um, top three speeches you've you've heard, or top three presidents as speakers? How would you rate them? Well, I mean, the, for Americans, the the supreme uh, rhetorical challenge belonged to Abraham Lincoln, and he rose to meet it. I think that uh, the two inaugurals and the Gettysburg Address are, you know, transformative uh, in all kinds of ways, and. Uh, I would say that's the epitome. We don't all aren't all called, thank God, to speak in those kind of circumstances, and we don't all have those kinds of gifts. But uh, in in that particular moment, it was it seems to me the penultimate realization of uh, what oratory can mean in a nation as distressed and and distraught as the United States was. Well, we have our reading assignments there for the weekend. Um, and uh, Rebecca, very quickly, the the championship goes on in St. Louis Thursday through the weekend. We actually kick it off tonight. We have young people gathering there just to kind of uh, meet and have a social. And we begin tomorrow morning. We have our global region happening then. And throughout the day, we'll have uh, each of the regions across uh, predominantly U.S., Canada, Caribbean. And then uh, Saturday morning, our St. Lawrence region, our French-speaking participants. Then we'll announce all the regional winners and the world championship with the top nine from everywhere will take place tomorrow or Saturday at 10 o'clock. Great. Well, I want to thank all three of our guests for joining us today. Rebecca Butler-Mona, president of Optimist International, Washington University Emeritus Professor Wayne Fields, and Justice Hill, a former oratorical championship winner and current St. Louis University student. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.